Hello and welcome to the October Yancey Street special, Satana Hellstrom, The Devil's Daughter. This is the Halloween special. Yes, it is coming a little bit late, but the wait is worth it. This podcast proudly contains far more information on Satana than any single one of her fan or wiki pages, so I am very pleased and excited to finally be able to share it with the world. On that note, I do have to put out a content warning as usual for this special. Uh, So this one is content warning for sexual assault, violence against women, topics of heaven and hell, extreme personal loss, murder, attempted fratricide, which is sibling murder, sacrifice, satanic panic, classic horror topics, general violence, and lewdness, etc. So if any of that is going to severely bug you out, I recommend skipping this episode. But let's go ahead and jump right in here with the background. Now to understand Satana, context is really necessary, as it always is. And here we do have a focus on the horror trends that founded her, which is an era known for what's called horror exploitation. To really understand how we get to that point creatively, we have to first take a look back at the history of morality in comic books in America, starting with the founding of the Comics Code Authority, which happened in large part due to a book called Seduction of the Innocent. Now, much of this is going to be quoted because it is all very official language uh, and information about this book. Um, So, Seduction of the Innocent in 1954 was written by Dr. Frederick Wortham. He published the book, uh, a tome that claimed horror, crime, and other comics were a direct cause of juvenile delinquency. What that means basically is saying that these comics were causing the juvenile delinquency. Wortham asserted, largely based on undocumented anecdotes, that reading violent comics, comic books encouraged violent behavior in children. He painted a picture of a large and pervasive industry shouted in secrecy and masterminded by a few that operated upon the innocent and defenseless minds of the young. He further suggested that the industry strong-armed vendors into accepting their publications and forcing artists and writers into producing this content against their will. To get into the specifics of what Seduction of the Innocent warned parents and the public against, he alleged that comics stimulated deviant sexual behavior. He noted female breasts in comics protruded in a provocative way and special attention was lavished upon the female genital region. A cover by Matt Baker from Phantom Lady was reprinted in the book with the caption, Sexual stimulation by combining headlights with the sadist dream of typing up a, of tying up a woman. Boys interviewed by Wortham said they used comic book images for masturbation purposes, and one young comics reader confessed he wanted to be a sex maniac. Again, he is asking young children this. Wortham contended comics promoted homosexuality by pointing to the Batman-Robin relationship and calling it a homosexual wish dream of two men living together. He observed that Robin was often pictured standing with his legs spread and the genital region evident. Now, as an aside, that was a very problematic claim, of course, that uh, still pervades to this day as being strongly harmful to the queer community and really goes back to uh, people like Dr. Frederick Wortham alleging that if you are queer, you are into children, which frankly is just not correct, but that is the kind of thing that Wortham was banging on, on his book about. 
And it goes on. Most alarmingly, he contended that comic books foster deceitfulness in children who might read funny animal comics in front of their parents, but then turn to horror comics the moment their parents left the room. Wortham warned of suspicious stores and their clandestine back rooms where secondhand comics of the worst sort were peddled to children. So he says. The language used to evoke images of children prowling about gambling dens and whorehouses, and anxious parents felt helpless in the face of such powerful force as the comics industry. Excerpts from the book were published in the Ladies' Home Journal and Reader's Digests, lending respectability and credibility to Wortham's arguments to which none of which were actually due to him. A 14-page portfolio of panels and covers across the entire comic book industry displayed murder, torture, and sexual titillation for the reader's consideration. The most widely discussed art of them was Foul Play, a horror story from EC about a dishonest baseball player who had whose head and intestines were used by his t- teammates in a game. Seduction of the Innocent sparked a firestorm of controversy created and created alarm in parents, teachers, and others interested in the welfare of children. The concerned were galvanized into campaigning for censorship. To be fair, um, yes, there was a good amount, there was an amount of extremism in some horror comics during that point in time. There was a sect of publishing, now I believe they they cited EC horror comics, um, there were a couple of publishers such as them who did go above and beyond and put in some extremely violent images even by today's standards. Now, I'm sure back in the day it would be even more horrific than what I personally see it as. Um, this was a very particularly not a large part of the comics industry and certainly not as available to children as uh, Wortham definitely made it seem. Yes, that was them taking things too far. That kind of happens in every industry, um, but in any case, Wortham was able to publicly paint the entire comic book industry as this evil entity, um, and that is how we get the Comics Code initial creation. Now, the Comics Code, what is the Comics Code? Comics Code does not exist anymore. Um, what it did exist back in the day, what it meant was uh, and this is the official line, this seal of approval appears on only on comic magazines which have been carefully reviewed prior to publication by the Comics Code Authority and found to have met the high standards of morality and decency required by the code. There was a lot of things that the Comics Code outlawed, um, a lot of which ended up being problematic to character history, such as queer identities, um, but things eventually start to calm down, and with the horse-exploitation wave of comic books that took place in the 70s, the Comics Code Authority uh, was relaxed a notch. The official history of it goes that the code was revised a number of times during 1971, initially in January, to allow for, among other things, the sometimes, quote, sympathetic depiction of criminal behavior and corruption among public officials. And it goes on to say, quote, as long as it is portrayed as exceptional and the culprit is punished, as well as permitting some criminal activities to kill law enforcement officers and the, quote, suggestion but not portrayal of seduction. 
the clause of suggestive posture is unacceptable was also revoked from the original comics code. Also newly allowed were, quote, vampires, ghouls, and werewolves when handled in the classic tradition such as Dr- Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works such written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world. Zombies, lacking their requisite literary background, remain taboo. To get around this restriction, Marvel in the mid-70s called the apparently deceased, mind-controlled followers of various Haitian supervillains Zuvembis instead of zombies. This practice carried over to Marvel's superhero line in The Avengers when the reanimated superhero Wonder Man Returns from the Dead, he is referred to as a Zuvembi. DC Comics published their own zombie story in Swamp Thing number 16 in May of 1975, where the deceased rise from the graves while a soul-devouring demon appears in Swamp Thing number 15 in that same year. So that was the relaxation of the code where we couldn't even say terms such as vampire, ghouls, werewolves, etc. Now that was allowed, and so was kind of seduction, which, as you can imagine, is a big deal when the book that kicked off the entire Comics Code's creation was titled Seduction of the Innocent. So things are definitely starting to modernize in the comics world during this era. However, black and white horror comics magazines, which did not fall at all under the code, they were still flourishing from the mid-1960s through the 80s from a variety of publishers, Marvel included. Mainstream American comic books experienced a horror resurgence in the 1970s following this loosening of the code. While the genre has greater and lesser periods of popularity, it still occupies a firm niche as of the 2010s. I guess what the person who wrote this was quite a while ago. Now let's look at some of the horror trends of the comics from the 1970s that followed this loosening of the Comics Code Authority and created this boom of horror comics from all kinds of publishers, including Marvel. There's a couple of topics here that are really fun, so we're going to start off with the probably most obvious one, well, one of the most obvious ones, Fear of Children. This is evident in many 1970s horror movies, especially the fear of the messy, painful, and sometimes fatal process process of pregnancy and childbirth. The debate around the debate raging around abortion fueled the paranoia because in 1973, remember, we did have Roe v. Wade, which was a gigantic step in women's health and in social health. R.I.P. Roe v. Wade. I can't believe that I actually have to say that. Another what change that we have is feminism and household changes, the issues surrounding women's demands for gender equality. Building on the success of the 1960s, a new generation of women fought for their rights and an equal education and opportunities in the workplace. Second wave feminism compounded the sensation and fracture within traditional family structures. Women, married women wanted to work too, rather than being stay-at-home helpmates for their husbands. It became a lot easier for a woman to get a divorce and strike out alone, with the law usually forgiving the mother when it came to granting custody for the kids. Men, once they became aware of this trend, pushed back, beginning the modern phase of the men's rights movements, which is a joke. The crumbling family unit generated much fear and mistrust, especially for men. Filmmakers who in the 1970s were almost always men used horror to reflect their personal fears about the way the world was going and their changing role in it. Ongoing fur about women's reproductive rights, along with ongoing and concerns about big pharma, the thal- 
the thalidomide scandal was very recent and very real. Both pro- and anti-feminist sensibilities of the time, as well as tapping into the humans-as-robots sci-fi trope explored by Westworld. Stepford Stepford Wives has entered our language as a term to describe any woman who is both spookily submissive and Stepford is a derisory term for any suburb that is uh, bland, basically. And then the biggest one is Satanic Panic, of course. In the horror movies of the 1970s, the devil seemed eager to prove to the world that he did indeed exist. Filmmakers relished the opportunity to work previously forbidden imagery of witches, demons, and naked moonlit rituals into their screen stories. These ideas meshed well with a new mode, mood of sexual pervis- permissiveness and a growing interest in stories about outsiders and anti-heroes. Some individuals, raised by harsh, even abusive nuns and priests, relished the opportunity to rewrite Catholic teachings about demons. It was an opportunity to get back at their childhood persecutors. It can be liberating to stomp all over the once sacred symbol. Tropes such as devil worshippers, white-clad virgins, possessed children, sex-starved covens, and the invocation of forgotten rites proved popular with audiences of the 1960s and early 1970s. Titles consisting of various combinations of words devil, blood, Satan, witch, demon, orgy, mark, cult, and secret made fun Sunday, Saturday night double and triple bills at rep theaters and drive-ins. Nunsploitation was a thing. Religious horror attracted serious filmmakers, too. Eager to emulate mainstream success of Rosemary's Baby in 1968 and to participate in the cultural discourse surrounding the much valued demise of organized religion, in 1966, Time magazine asked, Is God dead? putting crisis of faith on the cultural agenda. It's no surprise that many not that the so many novels and movies of the era involved direct confrontations with the devil himself. And we get into the new wave of horror. Not all 1970s horror movies were about children or religion. The 1970s is also a decade when the first so-called movie brats, who are the first generation to grow up with television and the level of visual literacy that it brings, they leave film school and let it loose on their own movies. We're talking Spielberg, Scorsese, Lucas, La Palma, etc., also, writer Stephen King hits the bestseller list with his 1974 debut, Carrie. These are people who grew up with the Universal Horror Classics and the Adams Family on TV and playing with their Aurora monster kits. This new breed of creatives were well-versed in the genre paradigms and steeped in genre history. They knew intimate how a horror film should both look and how a monster should behave, and how a skilled director might start playing variations on those well-worn themes. Finally, it brings us to slashers and killers. Although Psycho and Peeping Tom, both from 1960, are generally agreed to be the first slasher movies, it takes more than a couple of creepy killers with sharp weapons in disguise to define a subgenre. While American horror filmmakers turned to the technicolor demonology of the 1960s, the Italians jumped on the conveniently low-budget concept of a masked, gloved predator, which fitted neatly into the burgeoning ranks of Giallo. I'm probably butchered how that's pronounced. That is the movie adaptions of the cheap yellow jacket pulp murder mysteries popular in Italy in the mid-20th century. Among others, Maria Bava remained Hitchcock's basic recipe with his black-and-white thriller The Girl Who Knew Too Much from 1964 and the lurid color of Blood and Black Lace, also 1964. Over the next decade, decade or so, Giallo movies and the troops of the mysteriously large 
mysterious and largely motiveless murderer who invades the home of the young, beautiful, and terrified before slaughtering them one by one with whatever domestic objects come to hand, such as knives, decorative hooks, garden tools, curtain rods, etc. Giallo killers prefer to conceal their faces and identities for as much of the movie as possible. The audience only ever glimpses fragments, shoulders, hands, feet. Any sense of who this killer might be comes from hints about his or her backstory, and lecherous POV shots accompanied with heavy breathing and guttural moans. These plot essentials, often enlivened by psychosexual nightmares, sequences reminiscent of silent horror, were easily replicated and seemed to be endlessly appealing to audiences. A paradigm was born. Finally, after the Manson family rewrote the Giallo template into a frenzy of news headlines in August of 1969, it was inevitable that North Americans would become fascinated by stories about senseless home invasion killings once the family were safely behind bars. The bleakness of the giallo tropes, you're not safe even in your own home, and if you call the cops, they'll think you're crazy, fitted neatly with the mood of those times, and so too did the misogyny inherent in the nation's sub subgenre. Giallo later slasher movies and later slasher movies revolved around the persecution, torture, and murder of young women, often framed as free-spirited, anti-authority, brawless individuals who somehow deserve bloody punishment for their growing resistance of patriarchal norms. It's hardly surprising that the slasher became a key figure in 1970s horror movies. So let's get into Satana, the Devil's Daughter. What we're going to do here is we're going to do what I usually do with these comic book things now that we've gone through the intro so you have a little bit of context. We're going to talk her keys, of which there are actually not that many. I had to kind of dig to find some. And then we have a couple other topics. The topics include aliases, family, teams and teammates, allies, which are not teammates, love interests, enemies, outfits and physical appearance, powers, alternate versions, and then we have her life history through the comics, and we're going to wrap it up with her duality. So starting with Satana's Keys, her first appearance was October 1973 in Vampire Tales number two. Vampire Tales was a black and white anthology horror, horror comic from Marvel. Her background comes from Marvel Spotlight number 13, which actually was not black and white, but did focus on her brother, Damon. Her uh, real-life creation story, the story of the comic creators who created her, comes from Vampire Tales number 3. Her first cover appearance is Haunt of Horror number 5, and her first solo issue is Marvel Premiere number 27 in 1975, which is also the first appearance of Rocket Raccoon and has a truly fantastic cover. It's also worth noting that there is going to be 32 years after that before Satana finally gets a second solo issue, um, which is in 2007 titled Legion of Monsters Satana. She also has a few other keys that I have dug up. The death of Exeter, Exeter being her cat familiar, comes in the second story of, um, ooh, I actually didn't write down the issue. I believe it was Haunt of Horror number four, and that was the second story titled Satana Dark Doorway, or Doorway to Dark Destiny, excuse me, by Chris Claremont and Pat Broderick. And then we have the issue where she is sent from hell or abandoned by her father, Haunt of Horror number five, where it is revealed that the evil Miles Gorney is actually Satana's father who has been testing her in frankly the stupidest of ways. 
Her original death was Marvel Team-Up number 81 on behalf of the soul of Stephen Strange. She is resurrected in Hellstrom Prince of Lies number 10 in 1994. She then dies a second time to be resurrected for the Witches series and then is killed by Tyr in X-Factor 256 and sent back to hell another time. Finally, it is unknown if she dies in S.H.I.E.L.D. number 5, but uh, she, among others, were shot and then it wasn't really explained what happens after that. So those are what I've kind of got up for the keys of for Satana. Of course, you can be following along with this if you are checking out the podcast notes for the episode. And I also have an image post for the episode, which is a lot of information on it itself. And all of that, of course, is linked in the description for uh, this one in below. Satana does have a number of aliases, the Devil's Daughter, of course, being the most famous one, originating in Vampire Tales number two. Uh, she and Hellstrom, Prince of Lies number 10, further down the line, she takes over the body of a woman called Julia, and so she is briefly known as Julia. Uh, she is called Queen of Hell and Devil Woman in the Witches series, uh, Chica Diablo in Woman of Marvel Digital number two, uh, Angela from Asgard calls her Little Demon in Strike Force, and in an alternate reality series called The Supernaturals, she is known as Maria Ramos. Finally, the most well-known, well, not the most well-known one, but the most integral one of her aliases is Judith Chambers, which comes from um, a really important issue in Satana's solo series, and so her solo um, issues that, that are out there, uh, where she is kind of transformed into a human, Judith Chambers. Satana does have a little bit of a complicated family structure. Um, as for the relationships with the family, we'll get to that when we get to the appropriate sections like allies and really it's more like enemies. Um, but this is who her family is. Now, this first one is Dormammu. I have done a fair amount of searching to see where the link between uh, her father and Dormammu actually is. And I can't actually figure that out, but everywhere that I look, it says that Dormammu is either Satana's alleged grandfather or her own father's grandfather, but I can't figure out where that comes from. So they may or may not be related to Dormammu in some way. Of course, Dormammu is Faultine. He's a being of the Faultine. He is not a demon. Um, he is just an entire race among himself. There is no real Earth timeline for Domamu's existence, <laughs> I don't think, um, which is why I, I bring it up because, of course, Satana's father is ancient. So let's get into him a little bit. Um, she is, of course, called the devil's daughter. Her brother is the son of Satan. Their father is Satan. Yes, it's true. But technically, no, he is not. Uh, his name is actually Marduk Kurios. He is, he, he is, he's not actually Satan, technically. Um, it's a bit complicated, though, so let's cover that. Um, he has two Marduk Kurios, their father. He is a demon. Don't get me wrong on that one. He has two origins that have been presented uh, for Marduk Kurios. The first says that he was one of many demons and hell lords who arose from the primeval concentration of ener energy left behind by the ousting of the Elder Gods by the Demigorge, which is like a millennia ago, you know, and then shaped by the unconscious desires of the early human worshippers. That's the first kind of explanation of him. The second one says that he was the biblical Lucifer and led the rebellion against paradise. Still having the form of an angel, Marduk proposed the covenant 
by God and defied him, stating that as a supreme being, he could change the rules whenever he wished. God consequently agreed to step away. He then degenerated into becoming a demon who ruled over one of several realms of hell. Now, that's kind of the thing that is important to know. Not important in the satanic concept, but important if you want to understand who Mardukurios is. There is no one Satan in the Marvel Universe. Yes, we have hell lords. And we tend to have kind of like one, it tends to be Mephisto, I guess, overarching uh, demonic figure who kind of is like in charge of all of that. Um, And that more or less is who the devil in Marvel Comics would be at that point in time. And then there's like, you know, you would get Hela, who is a hell lord, as well as um, a ruler of her own dimension to itself related to Asgard stuff. But to be an actual, the true Satan or devil, uh, officially in Marvel Comics, this has to be an entity uh, who is the absolute ruler of all evil, which could mean that it is one of the Hell Lords who has amassed enough power to rightfully claim that title. So there, while there is many Hell Lord demons, the like supreme devil title is kind of passed around, and this Mardukurios character having been, you know, very loosely described as, like, an ancient devil being, one of the original kind of devil tropes that humanity interacted with, he's he's pretty close to um, being, like, the foundation of the concepts of the devil. Uh, but he is not actually Satan, he is not actually the devil, he is just kind of, like, parallel to it, I guess. And all of that is discovered, if you wanted to, to find it, in... Um, Let's see, it would be Hellstorm. That's what it is. Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, number 16. And he took a shape of the member of the devil-worshipping Hellstrom family to marry Victoria Wingate and then move to Massachusetts and start their family. Um, And then when, of course, everything kind of goes wrong with that, he ends up taking Satana to hell with him because she likes his demonic powers, whereas Damon had always shied away from that. So moving on to Victoria Wingate Hellstrom, the mother of Satana. Uh, she was a true American girl. Her ancestors were on the Mayflower. Uh, the Hellstrom family, this is this is a little bit weird because it does say the Hellstrom, I do know the Hellstrom family were secretly Satanists. The part that I don't, that I can't really find the correct wording for is that she, Victoria was apparently, before her marriage, was apparently sold to the chapel of Dresden, who marked her to be the mother of half-human, half-demon children. Not really sure about that one. Uh, but anyway, she ends up, of course, marrying, uh, well, it's Marduk Kurios, but he was uh, the Hellstrom, whoever he was posing as for the Hellstrom family. Eventually, Victoria catches Satana performing a series of rituals and ritual sacrifice in the basement. She basically goes mad from the experience and is institutionalized. She constantly held an onk as protection from her husband after that point and died later at the mental hospital. Stephen Loss later exhumes Victorian's, Victoria's body and confirms that she had been marked by the Dresden who uh, he destroyed a few months after Satana's birth. So I think that links into that whole being sold to the Chapel of Dresden thing from her youth, I guess. It's a little bit confusing to me, but um, basically Victoria Wingate was a big old woman in a refrigerator. A little more briefly, because we're going to talk about him more later, of course, is Damon Hellstrom, her brother. 
Now, depending on who you ask, Damon is either three years or a year and a half older than his sister. Canonically, it is a year and a half. The three years came from Chris Claremont, who is writing the story that he obviously didn't check his facts. Um, and then we have Damona Hellstrom, who is her niece, who doesn't have a mother as far as I can tell. And finally, Patsy Walker, the Hellcat, who is her ex-sister-in-law, and they have never met somehow. And we'll get into my ideas for that at the end of this episode. Some of the teams and the teammates that Saitana has worked with, she has been on the Masters of, this is not in order, by the way, the Masters of Evil West Coast, which happens in West Coast Avengers numbers four through seven. Her teammates are Derek Bishop, Eleanor Bishop, Eel, Graviton, Novar, Lady Bullseye, Modok, Madame Mask, and of course, Saitana. On the Hell Lords, which we see in X Factor 249 through 256, which is frankly tragic, we have Satana, Johnny Blaze, Mephisto, Beezlebub, Hella, and Pluto, who is killed. He's not actually killed, he's a Hell Lord, so he just went back to his domain. Although we do have other Hell Lords who are Asmodeus, Beezlebub, Belasco, Blackheart, Dansker, Dormammu, Damon Hellstrom. A couple that I can't pronounce that I'm not going to bother trying right now. <laughs> Lucifer, Mardo Curios, their father. Oliver, Pluto, I think this is Oliver. <laughs> Pluto, Satanish the Supreme, Strong Guy, Thog the Never Spawn, Umar the Unrelenting, Zuthal, Lucifer Lightbearer, and Strong Guy, of all people. She was on a team called The Witches from the Witches series by Brian Walsh and Mike Deodato Jr., which was four issues in around 2009. This included Saitana, Jennifer Kale, and Topaz, who were all brought together by Doctor Strange. In the series, the three women are very much fight and love, but come together in the end to keep Strange from being the one person who gets the dangerous magical book that he brought them together to protect because he's a hypocrite. <laughs> Avengers of the Supernatural, she was a member in Uncanny Avengers Annual Number 1, thanks to uh, uh, Mojo. Her teammates were Blade, Doctor Strange, Ghost Rider, Manthibian, or, sorry, Manphibian, and Man-Thing. She was on the Thunderbolts, which is what I can least recommend out of her entire reading uh, reading appearances. This was th roughly Thunderbolts 155 to 174, uh, where it was Satana, Moonstone, Hyde, Ghost, Fixer, Gunna, Boomerang, and Centurius. Lots of weird ones. Uh, this is There was a lot of uh, really archaic Satana versus Moonstone through a lot of that series, and then the rest of them is being a great team of sister bitches. It was really wishy-washy. I can't honestly recommend it in the slightest. She was also on the Legion of Monsters briefly in a Daredevil arc with Frank, who is, of course, Frankenstein's monster, Man-Thing, Morbius, Werewolf by Night, The Living Mummy, and Manphibian, I believe. And in Marvel Tarot, she is half of the Devil card, by which I mean... The Devil card gets pulled twice, and it gets pulled as two different uh, characters, Damon being the second one. In the 2007 Marvel Tarot number one, there are some interesting quotes. It calls her an unpredictable and flickering flame, the grand dame demoness cultivating the souls of a thousand suffering, and also street smart sweetheart bad girl heroine, which they spelled bad girl heroine with G-R-R-L. Can you tell it was written by a man? <laughs> It also says, she tries on personalities the way some women try on shoes. Every guy teaches her something she needs to know or takes her somewhere she needs to see. She plays a subtler game than her brother, and I think she intends to be the only player left on the board. 
Not sure where they got that, to be honest. <laughs> Except for that last sentence, the subtler the gain in her brother. And finally, it says, Satana is easily distracted and that keeps her from ever becoming a real danger. I'm sorry, but rude. <laughs> and also has very little... That was definitely pulling from the Thunderbolts, I feel like, because the Thunderbolts, that was... Yeah, that was her and the Thunderbolts, which we're going to get into how much that was not her. As for Satana's allies, now these are not her teammates. These are specifically allies who you come across in reading her history through the comics. The first ally you come across is Exeter, her feline familiar. It's never really defined if Exeter is male or female. I believe it is male, uh, but Exeter does unfortunately die thanks to Chris Claremont. We also have Xanarth, who is an incubus, which is a male version of a succubus who feeds off of female souls versus Satana is feeding off of male souls. Xanarth was a friend of hers when she was in hell as a child, uh, and then she encounters him again and allies with him as she f searches for, rather, a new route to hell. But unfortunately, he is killed in the process, and that happens in Haunt of Horror number four. Ruth Cummins is the first female that Satana allies with on Earth in Vampire Tales number three. She meets a tragic end in that same issue. However, then we come across Gloria Hefford, who has more than one appearance. She has two. Uh, she is a friend of Ruth's who Satana ends up moving in with after Ruth's death, Ruth's death, which really, in my personal opinion, only just goes to add to her pro-female personality. Satana's love interests aren't really complicated. Um, there aren't really any, to be frank. Uh, she's, she's had a fling with Deadpool. She married him very briefly, which was kind of just out of boredom. Uh, happened in Deadpool Team Up 892 in 2010, and she does, of course, kiss Angela in Strike Force after sensing her broken heart. Um, and she also shows interest in America Chavez's girlfriend in the West Coast Avengers, calling her charming. Uh, but her sexuality basically is as a succubus, it makes sense that Satana would be roughly pansexual, interested in all types equally, regardless of legal gender, assigned gender at birth, body parts, planetary home, or even dimensional existence. If you have a soul, you are equally as worthy of her interest as any other soul. And that is just another a plot point that I feel like is loosely dangling there waiting for somebody else to pick up regarding Satana. Now getting into her enemies. Uh, I'll start with Lilith, who is a kind of like a briefer enemy for Satana, but she's worth mentioning because it kind of becomes like the writers of Satana mix up her and Lilith at a certain point in, in history. Even visually, she begins to look a lot more like Lilith just with the with literally everything. If you're looking at the image post right now, in the fan art section, I have um, the first image in the fan art section is a fan art of Lilith and Satana. You can see the two differences to the, of them as they looked when they were created. Uh, and then you can scroll up a little bit to her post-death, her post-resurrection post uh, time, and you can find there's a couple of screenshots of her. Um, it was during the X-Factor time. There's one particular screenshot of her um, basically looking exactly like Lilith. Why did they do that? That's it's just, it 100% was creators just not not paying attention at all to character designs. Uh, but Lilith is an enemy of hers by proxy through Stephen Strange. Of course, Marduk Kurios slash Satan is also her father, which is complicated because for a long time he was actually posing as a different enemy altogether. 
known as Miles Gorney, and it became this whole thing that Satana had to figure out who Miles Gorney was, and when she finally figured that out, oh, it was your dad, it was dad, and he was just testing me like a dick, so that pretty much effectively ended their relationship right there. Damon Hellstrom, of course, is her brother, but again, it is quite complicated. They are definitely possibly what you would call frenemies. <laughs> um, the first encounter of Damon and her, or sorry, of Satana and her brother Damon as adults uh, really does not go well. It ends in them fighting, and the fight ends with uh, two of them basically being fine, uh, but she kind of is like, yeah, dude, next time I see you, I'm going to murder your ass. Um, and, and, and that's kind of it. They, of course, never end up killing each other. They'd actually don't interact too, too much after that point ever, uh, until, I think until modern history, really. So, um, that of course never came to fruition, but it is another plot thread that could be picked up on. We also have the four and the Camarilla of the Negrai, which is where we get into things that are a little bit weird. Um, these are from her early days. Notice I don't really have any modern enemies on here because there was, there has been such lack of characterization for her over a great portion of the 2010s portion, excuse me, great portion of the 2010s. The four was kind of the original villains of Satana. They kicked her from hell. Um, actually on the, um, I believe on the instruction of Miles Gorney, who ended up of course being her father. Uh, and so they did all these like things to keep her from being able to return to hell to be with her father, and they trapped her on Earth and bound her to only feeding on souls and all of this stuff. Uh, and then it turned out that they were all just sent by her father, because he was being an asshole. And that's why they don't talk anymore. Uh, the Camarilla of the Negrai. The Camarilla, of course, is that's a Spanish term for, like, a secret society, more or less. Um, they were four uh, demonic sorcerers who work for the Negrai, who were basically this ancient evil that um, if Satana were to release the basilisk inside of her, i.e. Were, were she to die and the basilisk be released, it would mean their um, arrival on Earth as well. So that's what they wanted. That's why they sent the Camarilla after her. Something roughly like that. It was Chris Claremont, and he even admitted in the finale of that story that he didn't explain it right. So, come on. <laughs> Satana's outfits and physical appearance. Upon her choosing, she can demonstrate more demonic physical characteristics, including luminescent eyes, overgrown arched eyebrows, horns, etc., uh, so she can pretty much change her appearance as she wishes. Now, where this kind of starts to go wrong, as I've already mentioned, is where they started to draw her to look, probably without their knowledge, like Lilith, who is the Queen of the Vampires, daughter of Dracula, I believe, kind of turning Satana into just a generic, replaceable villain instead of the very morally complicated anti-hero that she, in all reality, really is. Um, and that's quite sad, but we'll get into the mischaracterization of Satana a little bit more, well, a lot more when we get to her history, but in general, colors that her hair has been is pretty much all of them, black, red, brown, or white. Her costumes have been purple, black, or red, and she has had uh, horns or really long eyebrows or bangs that kind of flip up like horns is usually the look. 
her original look you can see on, uh, like once again, if you're following along on the image post, I have her like lookbook <laughs> as the first gallery of images. Her original look was the long red hair, the extendo eyebrows, and the black outfit with the fur boots. Now technically her original, original look by John Romita was actually a little bit simpler than that because they were still waiting on the art from Spain where the artist was designing her. Um, but that was once, that was, I guess, her second appearance. Like the official look, the official original look, not the Romita one that he had to kind of do in a, in, a, in a flash. That is the red hair, long eyebrows, and black outfit with fur boots, which, in my opinion, is classic. In the Witches series, she, for some reason, is giving dark, spiky hair with some red strips in it, uh, and she wears a black outfit that more or less looks like leather. In the Thunderbolts, her outfit turns dark again. Uh, she doesn't have horns or long eyebrows or hair that flips up like horns at all. Uh, she just has dark hair, so that's where she ends up looking a lot like... Um, a lot like Lilith the Vampire Queen. And that goes along into the Dark Avengers run where it kind of, her, her um, jumpsuit will kind of go back and forth between gray and black and kind of red in the shadows. Sometimes she'll have a red cape that attaches to her shoulders by skulls. And then she kind of evolves back into having more of the orange red hair once again. In Dark Rain, she fully has red hair, uh, as long as as well as a red leather vest and pants with fingerless long gloves. Because why wouldn't you? And then Chris Wachello redesigned her to have a red outfit with white hair for the first time and proper horns that she hadn't had since her first death. And then finally, in Strike Force, they gave her they edited that to have a purple suit, which I really really like. Uh, I think the only thing keeping it from being just like her original look. Uh, of course, aside from the hair and the horns, suit-wise is she doesn't have the fur boots. Please give her the fur boots back, because frankly, I love that. The powers of Satana fall in line with most demons in the Marvel Universe, but first she is a succubus, which is a particular type of demon blessed with a great beauty and magical powers. Her soul was formerly bonded to an archdemon and agent of destruction known as the Basilix. Now, as an addendum to that, there is no formally about it, as far as I can tell, she's still bonded to it, and there's not really any reason for it not to be there anymore. But that, again, goes into uh, plot points that they can pick up on, which we'll talk about at the end of this episode. The Basilic was a very powerful demon, though, and considered to be one of the deadliest, and she could release it from inside her and then return it to her. She has life force absorption as a succubus feeding on the souls of men. She kills her. She kisses her victims to kill them, causing them to shrivel and release the soul of a butterfly. Well, in a butterfly form. Saitana would then capture the butterfly to feed on it or crush it if she just wanted to destroy them. When she takes people's souls, she gains power from, from them and it increases her magical powers. She has superhuman strength, being much stronger than the ordinary human, and superhuman durability, also being much more resistant to damage than ordinary humans. She is able to levitate herself in order to fly and can release her astral form from her body onto the astral plane at will. 
She possesses the ability to generate control and project Hellfire at will, like her brother. Hellfire is an ethereal and supernatural flame that burns the soul of a person and can be used to burn their physical body. She's also impervious to her brother's Hellfire. She has the ability to control minds and also has shown that she possesses potent mystical power, including freezing her opponents still and using energy bolts as attacks. And then alternate versions of Satan. She's appeared in a number of video games, including Marvel vs. Capcom 3, Fate of Two Worlds, and Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3, where she appears as one of the demons at a, or one of the patrons at a demonic bar. She appears as a boss and an unlockable playable character in Marvel Avengers Alliance, as well as in Marvel Avengers Academy, and is an unlockable player in Marvel Future Fight and also exists in Future Revolution New Stark City. As for comics alternate realities, in the Mongaverse, Earth 2301, uh, Johnny Blaze is her second brother, and according to Damon, Satanus Bust has increased since the last time they he had seen her, implying she had somehow enhanced that attribute. Good for her. On Earth X, Earth 9997, Satana would be seen in the realm of the dead, living in eternity like so many others there in constant battle, and believing that she is still alive and those who are still living are dead. After Marvel destroys death and creates paradise, Satana was one of the many super beings that would be brought through to this new afterlife. There would be there would consume a shard of the oh she would consume a shard of the cosmic cube to create her own ideal paradise and her fate involving the invasion her fate at following the invasion of paradise by the Kree is unrevealed. In Deadpool 29, 2099, Earth 16356, she is only seen as a statue. And I've already mentioned the supernaturals, Maria Ramos from Earth Chaos, Earth 98091. Uh, where she is a Catholic girl possessed by a demon and fights alongside Brother Voodoo, Werewolf by Night, Black Cat, Ghost Rider, and Gargoyle. In this alternate reality, Satana has the power of flight and controls fire. And then we have characters who are similar to her. Uh, there is Satana, the Satanian princess, who the Satanians are a race of highly advanced humanoids that live on the planet of Satania, ruled by a king who worshipped the sun. This was, of course, old school Marvel stuff. And then finally, there is the character uh, Satana Poison, who lives in the home of the Hive, Earth 17952. One of the poisons attempting to breach them, the venomized Doctor Strange's magical defenses in order to assimilate him to the hive before she was killed by members of the Resistance. Finally, we have in television and live action, Satana was played, well, Anna Hellstrom, as they called her, which I think is kind of dumb, I'm sorry, was played by, ooh, who was she played by? She was played by Sydney Lemon. And that brings us to her entire life history. We'll kind of go over a couple of points of important things. So let's get into it, starting with her early life. When Satana was a child, her mother Victoria discovered her husband and daughter, Satana, performing a sacrificial black magic ritual involving animal sacrifice in the basement of their New England mansion. Victoria went mad upon witnessing her husband's transformation into Satan himself and was sent to a mental hospital only to die soon afterward. Damon and Satana were meant to be taken to separate orphanages, but Satana's transport went missing. In reality, Satana was taken to hell to be trained 
trained in the use of her demonic powers by her father and his minions. Her childhood companions are a bit hard to sniff out when reading her history, but her childhood in hell does put itself together for those who pay attention. You have Xanarath, the incubus companion. You have Dansker, the former hell lord torn turned torture professor. And you have Dame Aramanth of Elyon, her seamstress. In Vampire Tales, Volume 1, Number 3, she appears in Kiss of Death by Jerry Conway and Esteban Maroto, with the story of her creation taking place in, quote, everything you always want to know about Satana, but were too awestruck to ask. The room in question consists of Carla, the writer Carla Joseph, who is the editorial assistant, Marv Wolfman, Tony Isabella, Don McGregor, and features John Verpertine. If you are interested in the history of any of those creators, I recommend you checking out the story. The creation story is prefaced by a stunning character sketch page by Esteban Maroto, the Spanish artist, and in my opinion, it should always be used as the ultimate Satana lookbook guide. This section I'm calling Turn for the Better, Turn for the Worst. Haunt of Horror number two, the editor's note addresses a letter from one Ralph Macchio, yes, that Ralph Macchio, talking on wanting more Satana. He says the tantalizing art and writing of Vampire Tales number three was too little for fans, and she wasn't even in the fourth issue. He predicts she will be more popular than Morbius and should be treated thusly. He also predicts Marodos will not stick around as her artist, and possibly that's why she wasn't in the fourth issue. Issue. He asks the chances of seeing her in a color comic, and then the editor addresses his comments. They agree with her potential, hence her move here to Haunt of Horror. Maroto was sent two scripts, and then he did leave the project. They assumed he would send them the first script's art, and they were wrong, hence her missing in the fourth issue of Vampire Tales. Now, the missing first half of the Satana story they got a new artist for, and Conway wrote out the script for the first half, which is what follows in this issue as a prose story. And artist Enrique Badia Romero will be working on her from here on out. Her next appearance is Haunt of Horror number four, which includes a brief story called Hint of Horror. It's a story by the editor about the Angelique Trouvour Satana cosplay from New York Comic Art Convention in 1974. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, women were cosplaying Satana in 1974. This character was extremely popular. I'm trying to drive that in here. Additionally, in that same issue, Haunt of Horror number four, fan letters, multiple fan letters come in as highly complimentary of the characters of Satana and her story. Additionally, Bloody is the Path to Hell, the Satana story written by Jerry Conway and penciler Enrique Romero, was rated the top story from the second issue. Once again, remember, that was only the first handful of her appearances, and Satana is that popular for fans. We have female fans writing in about how great they think they, she is. They have Ralph Macchio, already probably famous, writing in talking about how great she is and how she's going to be bigger than Morbius. How did that fall? So then we get to the but then. The second story in Haunt of Horror number four was called Saitana, Dolray the Dark Destiny by Chris Claremont and Pat Broderick. It is the first Claremont story of quite a number and the first noticeably extreme drop of quality in Saitana comics. 
Then we have by Claremont's Haunt of Horror number five with artist George Evans. The following negative observations could be made and the whole magazine got canceled, including its final chapter of Satanic Stories. Coincidence? I'll let you decide. Here are the points, here are the negative observations, starting with the art being tragic. Satana is drawn very poorly and very lazily. When Agathon shows up, the male demon effort comes with him and Satana continues to look bad. Satana is now written as a woman in despair, with the first arc of the story ending with Agathon knocking her out and grabbing her body by her hair in what I would call a very rapey way. Suddenly, Satana is weaker than men. She wakes up and chokes out the first person she meets who is a woman. Lots of WTF moments. There's a really weird harem situation going on when she gets into Miles Gorney's office. Everyone Satana has ever cared about uh, is shown being tortured in hell, including her cat. What the hell? Uh, She chooses to separate from her father in the end, feeling free, but is written with way too much melodrama. All in all, the quality of Satana's story drops dramatically. Whatever they were teasing a photo comic issue in uh, Haunt of Horror number two, I believe, and that never came to fruition, or in number four, that never came to fruition in number five. And there were many pointless deaths in Claremont's Satana writing, and he pointed them out to be such. Claremont seems to be constantly trying to do dramatic things to play up on emotion, but it doesn't really work the way he writes it, because he writes it like someone who's ever only witnessed emotion and not really felt it themselves. So that was Haunt of Horror number five. The magazine gets canceled, and nine months go by without Satana in comics. Remember how we started all those fan letters, all that excitement before Chris Claremont. So those nine months go by, and then we come into the arc that I will call the Basilisk. Satanic returns to confront her brother as an adult, something like 20 years, uh, after something like 20 years, in The Son of Satan's Marvel Spotlight, Volume 1, Number 22 and 24. She'd previously split allegiances with her father and has since been stuck on Earth. This is where we first encounter her intertwinement with the Basilisk, later found to be an archdemon of hell, bound to Satana as both servant and prisoner. The devil's mark on her throat, well, sometimes on her throat, marks her as the keeper of the Basilisk and therefore the keeper of Armageddon. The Basilisk is many times stronger than her, but under her total control, waiting to be called upon. But whenever it is put to use, it takes a little bit of Satana's soul with it, and one day, it will fully consume her, leaving only the Basilisk alive. Her encounter with her brother leaves them still at arms, if with a touch more understanding of one another. And not long after, Satana finds herself trapped again, this time in an identity spell cast by a group of demonic sorcerers called the Camarilla. Under their spell, she believes herself to be Judith Chambers, wife and mother. Judith is brutally put through the mental ringer until she is forced to discover her own true demo- her own true identity, and that the demon that lives inside her, the basilisk. She returns to her true self with its violence, with violent assistance, stopping the plan of the evil Negrai. But who are they, anyway? The whole villain side of the story was completely unexplained, unless you read the follow-up Claremont essay, where he tries basically to, one, take credit for the success of Satana before he even got on board, 
two claims that Satana to be twice the age difference from her brother as everything else canonically, he says three years, literally everything else canonically says 1.5. He was straight up wrong about that. He also admits that his first Satana story was poorly written and admits that this last story won't make any sense to fans, at least the villains won't, unless they read this textual explanation, as the story of those villains and their history with Satana was part of the cancelled Haunt of Horror issue finale. So instead of explaining that in this story, he just didn't bother and made this little addendum to explain it. That's what we call bad writing, kids. He also writes what might be the worst sentence he has ever written in his entire career when he's referencing Satana's first appearance. I, I'm, I can't believe I'm about to say this out loud. One back alley, big city rape coming up. How do you write that? How do you as a human being write that and not go, hmm, that sounds god-awful? <laughs> He's also dripping with ego through the entire essay and ends the essay by saying that there are straight up no further plans for Satana stories aside from a few brief cameos, but gives no explanation for that. So what is going on? You can see why I blame Chris Claremont for this. And also the next time that we do see Satana, it is her permanent, at the time, death. Again, I have no choice but to blame Chris Claremont for these changes, for these sudden whiplash, you know? Next up, of course, is that death in the Doctor Strange, uh, in Doctor Strange, for Doctor Strange, really. This happens in Marvel Team-Up number 80 to 81 in 1979. It is Claremont who kills off Satana in the end, effectively finishing her story. Perhaps out of the knowledge that he'd done this to her, he does actually put an effort to writing her well and accurately in these two issues. While in issue 80 she merely appears at the end as Clea answers the door for her, we see a lot more in the next issue leading up to her death, sacrificing herself to save the soul of Stephen Strange, who'd been turned into a werewolf. She and Clea make decent friends very quickly, perhaps sensing each other's what I call sensible demoness values. She does a ritual or two to find the answer to healing Strange from his violent werewolf affliction, coming only to the conclusion that one must die to bring him back to the light. As she was the most knowledgeable about the ritual to do so, Satana unflinchingly and unquestioningly makes the sacrifice herself. The story ends with a bit of an abrupt melodramatic bit on her, similar to how Claremont did to many other women in his stories. As best as I can tell, at this point in time, her death was written to be a permanent end. And we see her finally resurrected in Hellstrom, Prince of Lies, number 10, which is a series that actually started in 1993, 14 years later. Although she didn't appear until the 10th issue, Satana is front and center on the first, which in my opinion just goes to show how well she still works to sell comics, even when she hasn't been around in literal years, 14 to be exact. As a supernatural being, Satana's death was not permanent. Her soul, her spirit rather, returned to her father's realm of hell for a time until she had and a cabal of demons arranged to have her soul, among others, placed into a soulless body on earth. There she began to build her powers again, preparing to return to hell and conquer her father's realm. Which brings us to Marvel's Witches, a forest series. At some point, she did apparently die again. In the short-lived Marvel series Witches, Satana is resurrected again by Doctor Strange and teamed with two other magic-wielding females to defeat a powerful mystic enemy called the Helper. 
which was a front for her father, Mardukurios. According to that series, the three witches formed a coven in order to protect the, zome, the tome of Zered Na, a powerful book of shadows belonging to the Kale family, from would-be thieves such as Doctor Strange himself. The series is not that bad, however, the language of the series is very much of its time, lots of women against women, and lots of nastiness like that. Legion of Monsters, Satana number one, was her full first solo issue since, gee, way back when, since the 70s. In this, in this issue, a furious sister traps Satana in a pentagram spell because Satana sent her brother's soul to hell. She's still sending one intense souls to her father as a tithe to hell. She successfully gets his soul back from hell and delivers it to his sister, Jennifer Silence, but he turns to dust and evaporates after just a moment because Jennifer never specified that he had to stay alive. She decides to take Jennifer back to her own domain of hell because she usually only takes men, so having a woman now and again is actually quite nice. That brings us to her period as an occultist for hire. Satana starts working as an occultist for hire during Dark Reign, being hired by Parker Robbins the Hood to deal with his Dormammu possession problem. Getting rid of his cloak fixes that, as she suggests, and he takes her on as an occult consultant for his team. In the Deadpool team-up 892, there is a hell of a ton of unfortunate sexism specifically regarding Satana's figure. It speaks as though women are either curvy goddesses or gym freaks, and Satana is meant to be the latter, but cursed by the horny nerds with the former. It really doesn't make sense, since she was known to be the former for really most of her existence. There is nothing lovable about this version of Deadpool, in my opinion. They just marry and split up in the issue. Woman of Marvel Digital number two, uh, she also appears on the cover of number one. This issue was by Mark Bernardin, um, and he writes, Satana and Black Cat fighting turned team up. Satana was keeping up with the whereabouts of local supernatural objects and stops Felicia from selling one of, selling one of them and throwing off New York's demonic power balance. They end up bonding over fighting against his demons and great footwear. I struggle to find the humor in that, honestly, as her character never cared about fashion like that prior to Legion of Monsters, Satana number one. Which brings us to 2011's Heroes for Hire, where she's working as a supernatural antiquities dealer, and Satana discovers the gun that killed this particular man is a demonica. It rips the souls from its victims. To end it, Satana has Paladin guard her while she performs a ritual in the nude, and then exits calmly afterward, still naked. This brings us to the unfortunate run of her in Thunderbolts, roughly Thunderbolts 155 to 174, and then Dark Avengers 176 to 183. It covers a massive expanse of time with absolutely nothing, I would say absolutely nothing positive for the character of Satana. In, the th in this arc, Satana gets involved by being tricked by Doctor Strange into joining the Thunderbolts and wears a magical collar that keeps her from leaving. Yeah, a lot of questions there. There is not a whole lot of Satana in the Thunderbolts, Dark Avengers, X-Factor stories that covers a section of time, but what little there is, I would say, is quite poorly characterized. Gone is the Satana with dueling human and demon halves. Now she's pretty much just a wild card out to cause chaos. She does get a pretty decent bond going with Man-Thing and Hyde, the former due to his transformation into something new and magical, and the latter because she can tr control his basic most basest instinct and desire, sexual pleasure. 
The rest is basically her occasional mildly flirting with teammates and or fighting, arguing with Moonstone. When they travel to the past, pretty much a lot of the same as before, with Satana occasionally magicking them era-appropriate outfits. The only arc Satana gets for herself revolves around the belief that she and Hyde are actually Jack the Ripper, until it's discovered she is under an attack from a spell of, from ancient witches. With them dispatched, she goes back to being a somewhat background character for most of the time. Which leads us to this, the cross to Dark Avengers from the Thunderbolt series, where we really just get more Moonstone versus Satana, and more Man-Thing becoming just something new. Then we get to a period that I call Between Things, which is starts with X-Factor. 249 through 256, when Wolfsbane's Wolf, son, wow, that's a tongue twister, his name is Tyr. He is predicted to be one of the downfalls of Hell or something like that. So all of the Hell Lords, including Satana, try to take him down. Whoever kills him becomes the supreme ruler of Hell, basically the actual Satan. Satana tries to play both sides a little bit, which again, never would have happened in the past. It is quite unlike her. She isn't the one to stab you in the back and betray you. She's got very strict and unwavering rules and morals, and not this wishy-washy crap that makes it look like she has no solid allegiances or values. According to her first story, Satana very much has values that she would not bend like this for. Tyr is able to kill Pluto and all the rest of the Hell Lords before a strong guy shanks him and ends it, becoming the new Mephisto, basically. In Daredevil 2011, 32, and 33, Satana is back on Earth again, where she and the Legion of Monsters take Daredevil's help at escaping from an old-fashioned monster-hunting town. The group is searching for the Darkhold, and Satana is the only one with details about where it is actually being kept. In Uncanny Avengers Annual 2014 number 1, Mojo wants to make the Avengers of the Supernatural, putting on a dream show where Satana and the Supernatural Avengers go against the Defenders or regular Avengers or something like that, uh, as the Geeks and Goths versus the Jocks, you know, classic. In S.H.I.E.L.D. 2015, Issues 5 and 6, Satana is one of a handful of demonic and supernatural beings who are shot with a magical gun that keeps them about an inch from death. We don't see her aside from the incident, and we don't really know how that actually ends. <laughs> Which brings us to all new, all different hell. Things start looking much better for Satana in Doctor Strange Volume 4, numbers 13 and 14. Satana is now with the white hair design. Uh, she summons Strange to her diner in hell, asking him if he wants to be the new main attraction at her Las Vegas hotel. She talks about the damnation game and it's booming, about the great demonic bacon dish at the diner, and about wanting to bring in more lost souls to her side of the game. This is the first time since Dark Reign that Satana has been written like she was meant to be. None of this constant wishy-washy betrayal and backstabbing. That's not what it means to be half demon, half human. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. Strained escapes, of course, and Satana isn't bothered. Hell goes on. In Spirits of Vengeance 2017 2-5, it is written by Victor Gishler and drawn by David Baldione. This arc of Satana's story fits her character far better than the previous years. Satana is met with information, gets in on the plan, and effectively plays out her part as designed. No backtracking, no betrayal or fiendish behavior, because that was never her. She goes to help the team stop a plot from of hell-related issues on Earth, and ends up doing the job with her brother after they encounter their father and his armies in hell. She even gets a human to a human look to go with her demonic form, 
And true to classic Saitana, her motives are not actually bad. She was never written as a villain, but rather an anti-hero, not all that different from her brother. She simply relishes in the darkness of their powers more than Damon. If I'm not mistaken, this series ends with all the team members being owed a favor from heaven, which has not been picked up on Saitana's part. That brings us to her involvement in The Masters of Evil, which is West Coast Avengers 2018, numbers 4 through 7. Madame Mask's Masters of Evil specifically were meant to break the heroes in question, not kill them. Kind of a pattern of this stuff at the time, such as Kelly Thompson's Black Widow, etc. For the most part, Saitana is more of an active observer of the Masters of Evil as they try to torture the heroes without any real meat in the game aside from wanting entertainment and being vaguely annoyed that the West Coast Avengers are even in town while she is. It's made clear that she has no love for her teammates and their, their petty personal games either. More Vegas, baby, in Strike Force 1 through 2, which, by the way, I will never, ever stop talking about how good that series was and how it should not have ended, <laughs> ever. <laughs> but especially the way that it did. In Strike Force, Satana still runs her own club in Vegas, the Second Circle. She is immediately attracted to Angela and shows it. The team gets into some big trouble with her brother Damon, or rather, they kill him on accident and are trying to hide it from Satana because they, they think it's permanent. <laughs> Alas, she does figure it out and says it's not a problem, we can fix it! She tells Angela she can sense her broken heart before they kiss, and Angela calls her little demon. It seems that at this point, Satana and her brother are on fairly decent terms. Satana does care about her waitstaff, even if it's just because they're the best. And she is responsible, she needs to do bar counts before leaving the bar tonight. It is her place. And that brings us to her most recent appearances in Captain Marvel, the 2019 series, number 38 through 42. Captain Marvel is brought, <clears throat> or rather, Satana is brought in to be a jury, to be a juror to Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, for her crimes against magic, alongside Dr. Voodoo, Ileana Rasputin, Alaric, who is the cat fart guy, yes, I said that, Brother Voodoo, we already said him, and Agatha Harkness, the old version before they did that weird stuff. Um, she is accused in this against Carol, the accuser, sorry, against this in Carol is Enchantress, and the defense is the Scarlet Witch. Some of the lines that she says in this uh, arc is, some of us don't have eternity to argue over the problem that is Carol Danvers. And then she says later, that's because no one likes you, Alaric, so you have nowhere else to be. <laughs> she does agree with the Enchantress to change the simulation because she's bored, accurate, and the council or whatever it is she agrees that she's chill for the moment and she being Carol and disband, uh, but they will be keeping a close eye on her for sure. And boy, <laughs> Ms. Thompson, Kelly, Kelly, please, Marvel, Ms. Thompson, whoever the editor is, um, I think Sarah Brunstead or something. Please, give me more Carol and Satana. Please. And that brings us to my finale, Satana's duality. As a succubus, she has devoured the souls of men, but also served as an avenging anti-hero for all the women who were killed around her. Worshipping Satan doesn't make you evil. Satana has always known this and stood up for those people whose society otherwise condemns. Being half-demon doesn't make you evil, either. Satana constantly, when written correctly, struggles with her human half and its understanding and empathy versus her father's side, which lusts for power to feed on souls. She was never a truly bad character. She has her values and lives and lives by them strictly. 
picking her victims carefully, they were always bad men, rapists, murderers, con men, and those who would do her harm. At the same time, she still looks out for people, the dark and twisted, the weirdos. Mojo even casts her as a goth geek in his Avengers of the Supernatural show. How much more of a pillar for the weirdos, the losers, and the freaks can you get? Primarily straight white male writers doesn't help her case of trying to stick to this. They always wanted to write her as a woman-hating seductress who would just as quickly trick you as she would stab you in the back, qualities that never showed up in her original incarnations. I attribute all of that to those writers and remove them from her characterization as they are truly improper. It's a lot like how we even have how even after a writer had Patsy Walker's Hellcat and Greer Grant's Tigra hash their business out, a different creator immediately came in and chose to ignore that and instead have them do sexy catfights still anyway. Which is pretty much goes for the this week in the creator's fetish. These days, Saitana hasn't been around too much, but her characterizations has been vastly improved since her death at the hands of Tyr. Doctor Strange, Spirits of Vengeance, West Coast Avengers, Strike Force, and Captain Marvel have all made great strides in correcting those negative steps for Saitana, taken by her former writers. Now, once again, she is at last a woman of her own making, running a demon club in Las Vegas slash hell, it's kind of complicated. She's She's learned to care for her brother, enough to at least vaguely check in and make sure that he's mostly alive, which is character growth, and he too has grown himself over the years. And in the end, how different is Saitana from her brother anyway? They share the same lineage, but have always been painted through editorial as one better, Damon, and one bad, Saitana. But is that really accurate? Aside from the tragedy of her generic villain mischaracterization in the Thunderbolts and Dark Avengers eras, what has Saitana done that is truly evil? Stealing the souls of men can't go in that category, since again, she is very particular about the souls she takes. She has no issue stepping forward to help her fellow woman. She defends the innocent, those who are condemned for simply being who they are. Is that not the same as Satana herself and her brother Damon? When she first meets her brother as an adult, Damon tells Satana that they have the same human and devil halves. She just relishes in the darkness more than he. So what it brings us to is the question similar to ones that have been answered easily for characters like Morbius, Deadpool, and even Spawn. Does being made from evil and containing an amount of evil within you inherently make you evil? For those other characters, the answer has always been decidedly no. Why should it be any different from Satan, who has, aside from, again, that terrible Thunderbolts Dark Avengers era, not actually done much true evil in her lifetimes? Where that leaves us, then, is where we go next. With her characterization on the mend, fingers crossed the pattern sticks, there are a fair number of open-ended plots that can be picked up for Saitana, without even adding anything new to her character history. Her childhood in head... Her, her childhood in hell, exploring those characters and influences further. The basilisk, clarification, how did she get it? Does she still have it? And if so, can she be rid of it? Can it come back? Judith Chambers... So much that can be done with that. She can come back. She can be made her own person. She can make a reappearance. Explore Satana's sexuality and the concept of long-term relationships with quote-unquote sex workers, as Satana will still be a succubus needing to feed on the souls of human males, no matter her relationship status. She's never met Patsy Walker, her former sister-in-law and fellow superhero. She's also never met her niece, who I believe is motherless, so give her an auntie. Is Dormammu really a distant relative? Go for her mother's side of the family, the Wingates, Victoria Wingate. More interactions with fellow magical characters, not just demonic, like we saw in Captain Marvel. That was great. Her self-owned, women-owned business in Las Vegas slash hell. 
Heaven owing her a favor, occult specialist for fire was a fun one, and I guess her father and her brother are plot threads that are still pretty loose for her as well. Marvel, I have done the work for you. The ball is in your court. Give us Satana. That wraps up this special about Satana. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I put in a ridiculous amount of work, so I hope that you have found yourself a clear picture of who the character of Satana is. Uh, this, again, was the Technical October Yancey Street special. In 2023, I am going to be jumping to every other month, because it does take me about a month and a half to do one of these, uh, but I am still planning on putting out a Monica Rambo one before the end of the year. Make sure to check back in in 2023 for the Best of 2022 podcast, which will be coming out in January.